Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. Hi. I'm Matt Lambros, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time, I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon. Hello and welcome to Abandoned America. I'm Matthew Christopher, your host, and I'm joined today by my friend, author, and historian Matt Lambros as we continue our discussion on abandoned asylums. In the first part, we covered a brief history of mental health care in the United States leading up to the lobotomy and the period of deinstitutionalization, which is where we'll begin today. We'll also talk about one of the most famous American asylums, Danvers State Hospital, and go over what it's like to explore the aftermath and the mammoth ruins that were left after the state hospitals closed. Thanks for listening, and with that, let's continue our discussion. So, yeah, I think, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about some of the lobotomies that had been performed, and so the most famous, arguably uh, the most famous lobotomy that was performed was the one on John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary. And basically there's a lot of kind of debate on how, what her mental state was before that. Some people were basically saying that she had developed mental disabilities and that the family was ashamed of them. And that because it was a family that, you know, was known for their socialites, they're bright, they have political ambitions. And here's somebody who essentially can't keep up with that. Although there are other people that say that she was somebody who really wasn't particularly impaired, that she could do plenty of stuff like reading and multiplication tables and things like that, that she wasn't given credit for elsewhere, but that she was starting to get rebellious and interested in boys and and doing things that would otherwise embarrass the family. The outcome either way was that they took her to Freeman, if I recall correctly, who basically, or or the recommendation essentially was that 
she gets a lobotomy and that that would help make her more manageable. So Freeman presided over the lobotomy and the way that they did it was while he's performing it, they're having her uh, recite the Lord's Prayer and poems and stuff like that. And they basically kept going until she could no longer speak, which is, I think, maybe in all of medical history, one of the most horrific things I've ever heard. I cannot imagine somebody erasing my brain while I'm still conscious. And essentially, that's what happened. Yeah, and they kept her hidden from the family. Her siblings didn't know where she was after this happened. Not that I want to, you know, we're gonna, this isn't the Rosemary Kennedy podcast, but it's just something I feel like it needs to be said, the shame that I think her parents felt that they did this. I don't know. I don't, you know, it's, it's, that's a good question. Cause I don't know if they were ashamed that they did it or if they were ashamed because after this, she was even more incapacitated. She couldn't speak. She had to relearn to walk. So she was basically at a point where, I mean, she was really, really severely impaired. They moved her to a private place for care. And like they like I said, they didn't tell any of the family where she was. Yeah, the private place they put her was uh, the Craig House in Beacon. And that is it's now abandoned, or at least it was for a while, an abandoned uh, private mental hospital. I got to see it a couple years ago. Well, not a couple years ago. What, about 10 years ago at this point. And it's... Uh, it's a very cool one. It's uh, also alarmed, so <laughs> it's not the best. Don't just go there and expect to walk in and not have problems. Exactly. That's interesting. I wonder, I mean, I'm assuming you were in the main building. I would think, based on how places like McLean work, that oftentimes if you're super rich like that, you have like a private cottage. I mean, in McLean, you know, they had cottages for the uber wealthy that their family didn't really want to have in public that had butlers and staff and things like that. So I would actually be a little surprised if she wasn't in that same position. But then again, we, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know uh, much about the history of the place other than that it was a private mental hospital and it, uh, it's now closed. There are a couple buildings on the ground, but there are grounds, but I would say it's probably likely that she had her own room or suite there but i don't i'm not familiar with anything other than that maybe that's a future one that we could do yeah but, absolutely. yeah so basically the outcome of this whole thing aside from her being kept from the rest of the family until the parents died you know everybody was told that she was just reclusive and the story really not being known until after that was two things one was that her sister eunice kelly uh, kennedy shriver supposedly that led her to activism and she helped start the Special Olympics. So that was supposedly in her sister's honor, although she has made comments that that was something that she kind of wanted to do anyway. So who's to say? The other thing that that led to was John F. Kennedy passing the Community Mental Health Act. And basically that is something we'll get into in a minute, but it was kind of the start of the push for deinstitutionalization. And again, you know, it's not like we necessarily have a thread where they said, where he said, okay, I'm doing this because of my sister, but 
it's basically something that one could reasonably infer, let's say. So the Community Mental Health Act was in 1963 and basically established local mental health centers and community care. And one thing to circle back to Freeman, he lost his license after a patient died in the operation. So again, I mean, that's something we can look at maybe somewhere down the road going into a little more fully, but sticking with the asylums, you know. So, okay, you have the Community Mental Health Act, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure you know this. What was the other thing that led to the beginning of the end for asylums? Was it Penhurst? Well, it wasn't Penhurst because, you know, and, and actually you can make a good case for that too. There was a lot more community involvement in asylums. They, they were starting to open up more to the public. And so some of the horrors were getting out. But yeah. the, the really big thing was the creation of Thorazy. Oh, yes. So there's this idea of pharmaceutical restraints and, you know, kind of, medications that wouldn't some I mean honestly uh the Thorazine it's not an apples to apples comparison to a lobotomy but it does incapacitate people and make them a lot more docile in some of the ways that the lobotomy did also has a lot of really ugly uh side effects such as uh tardive dyskinesia which is where you get like uncontrollable twitches or chewing or you know things like that that's a a long-term effect of it and Thorazine moved its way to Haldol, which is still in use this day. But the idea was that you could manage people's mental illness with pills or shots, things like that. And so that allowed a lot of people to go home, which was essentially what, you know, the goal always was. It was the goal with asylums. It was the goal with uh, Henry Cotton, which we'll talk about later, his experiments on people. The goal was to stop costing the state money uh, with care of these people and move them back out into the community. So as medicine improves, and as people are increasingly going into the asylums and reporting back on the things that they experience there, public sentiment really starts to turn against the asylums. And so you have things like CRRs, which are basically um, programs where they take people that had lived in the asylums and transition them into their own apartments. I actually worked at one of them for a while. And it was wild to see people that had, say, there was a guy that had been in an asylum for like, you know, 20 years, let's say. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was a very long time. And it was like, he didn't know what to do with mail or bills. I mean, why would you if you were in a hospital that long? So these programs are set up under JFK to kind of transition people. But also, the other thing that happened was Reagan really saw closing the asylums as this huge financial windfall. He was very anti-union to get rid of a whole bunch of people that were in unions, that were uh, had pensions and things like that. You close the asylum down, you dump all the people out onto the street, and there you go. You saved a bunch of money. And this is one of the many things he did that was really part of a pretty terrible legacy because when people think of the 1980s and they think of all the homeless people and stuff like that, a lot of the homeless problem that was in the 1980s was caused by people that were mentally ill that had been dumped out on the streets with no real system of care, no network. I mean, you know, I just talked about CRRs, but 
these are hundreds of people that are getting dumped out. So this is in, and it's not just the 1980s. So my wife grew up in Medfield, which has Medfield State Hospital. And she tells stories of people, like homeless people that lived in her town. Like there was a guy who gave out bubble gum to everyone and lived in a halfway house. And he was someone who was from the hospital. I worked in Salem, Massachusetts for a little bit, which is a town over from Danvers. And I remember there was a few homeless people that, I don't know if they were homeless. They were, they would come into a store I worked in and try to sell anything they had back to the store, even though the store didn't buy anything. And the one guy I'm thinking of didn't talk much. He would just come in, put something on the counter, point to it. And I would say no. And, and then I asked one of my managers, like, what is this? And he's like, oh, that guy's been coming in here for, you know, 10 years. He actually used to be at the hospital up on the hill. You know, now he lives over at this this place. It's, it's funny that I have that story, but my wife, who grew up in a town with another hospital, has a similar story. And I think that if you talk to people who lived near these towns where these hospitals were, they probably all have similar stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of looked at as a bit of a joke to people that it didn't directly impact like, oh, these wacky mentally ill people are out or whatever. And really it's something that's deeply sad. Um, yeah, you have people that were places and, um, you know, my, my favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. You know how they talk about being institutionalized in that movie. And that's really what they were. I mean, you live in a place for 30 years and maybe you went in there when you were 15, let's say. Right. And, how are you going to know how to do your bills? How are you going to know grocery shopping and how that works or managing your own medications or things like that that are kind of life skills that we all take for granted? And people in their infinite callousness would look at that as stupidity or ignorance, but you don't know things unless people teach them to you. And when you're in an asylum, all of that stuff is managed. Yeah. You know, are given as little control of your environment as possible. So even things like uh, being able to choose what you want to watch on TV, that's weird when you haven't been able to do it for that long. What do you do with freedom? One of the ones that really is kind of, I think, a emblematic, is embl emblematic of this whole closing thing is Philadelphia State Hospital or Byberry, which we talked about a little earlier, if I recall correctly. And so Byberry closed in 1986 and... Well, they started the process of closing. Let me put it that way. And they had no real plan in place. They just kind of dumped everybody out into the community. And they're really sad stories when you read about people that are like family members. Again, it's been a while since I read the story, but I believe the one was that, you know, this woman's brother was sort of dumped out from the place. She had no care for him. He was severely mentally ill. And She's trying to figure out how to get a hold of somebody or somebody that's going to help her. And I believe he was one of the three people that wound up dead in the Skullkill River from there. And so they basically were like, oh, crap, you know, three of these people died. It looks bad. And so they closed it down a little more slowly. And again, I mean, um, I believe it was 1990 that the final closure was done. But... <laughs> You know, that was kind of what happened, particularly in the 80s, is this start of, of closing down places and dumping people out on the streets. And this is a financial windfall for the states and uh, local governments that operate them. I mean, asylums are expensive to operate. The land can be sold, developed, things like that. 
And, you know, in the meanwhile, and, and the thing is, okay, so like when I, when I would talk to people, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, the land can be developed, but how long did that take? Like, uh, just to interject here, how many asylums have we been to? How many have we photographed uh, that sat around for 20 or more years and were not redeveloped or not sold? Like, you know, that's just like, if, if that's one of the excuses, that's, that's why they wanted to close them to, to sell the land. That's another thing they did terribly. Well, of course. And yeah, I mean, you've seen in asylums as much as I have. I mean, you go to places and they're full of stuff that was expensive, you know, desks and clocks and chairs and file cabinets and things like that. And they would just get left there or lumped in a room. Um, I, I remember in Pennhurst, there's a room just full of wheelchairs. And this is certainly not the only place that I've been in that was like that. And you think, wow, why could these not have gone to people who used them? And the answer is because it's the state and they're not spending their own money. And what are they going to do? Like have a yard sale for wheelchairs? Yeah. And so I remember reading somewhere, and I'm not 100% sure if this is true or not, but that the state of New York was still paying the for the construction of Cheney when it was abandoned. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, Cheney yeah. being the newer building at Hudson River State Hospital. Uh, yes. Right. And it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think the thing is there's so much inefficiency when it comes to dealing with these things. But this is getting a little bit ahead of myself here. But the other thing that would happen is, okay, so let's say that you abandon a hospital and then you just tear it right down. Well, you know, there's there's a fair amount of resistance to that, particularly because these are historic buildings. So they may get, over time, they might get like a designated historic landmark status or something like that. So a lot of times the letting them fall apart over the years, whether intentionally or not, that's, I guess, up to you to decide what you think, but that's demolition by neglect. They let it fall apart enough that people are sick of it. It's an eyesore. It's destroyed beyond repair by time. And then they can say, oh, well, you know, this blight on the community would be so much better as like a, a condo development or something. Yeah. And to that, when it was probably 2004, 2005, I went to Taunton State Hospital with a friend of mine and we noticed them putting up a fence around the building. And we asked the, the workers what they were doing and they pointed us to someone who was in charge. And he said, well, People keep breaking into this building, and I forget if it was on a National Historic Register or not, but he said, we found out it would be cheaper for us to put up this giant fence than it would be to knock the building down. And unfortunately, you know, there was a fire after that, and then they realized that people kept getting in and climbing the fence, and it became more of a hazard, and so they ended up tearing it down. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it really is ridiculous when you start looking at these things in terms of the cost. I, you can't apply logic to it, really. No. But the other thing that was happening as these places were getting closed, just to circle back to that part, is that often the community, the community care that people were supposed to receive really didn't keep pace. So you have the, you know, on one hand, you have people that are advocates, mental health advocates that want to close the asylums down for what they stood for, which I get that. And I recall talking to a guy who was in a mental health advocacy uh, group, and he was saying about how glad he was going to be when Worcester State Hospital was torn down because of what it represented. And 
I personally, you know, that's, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in throwing out the baby with the bathwater and that people did bad things in a building. So that makes the building bad. It's the people that failed. But I could understand where he felt that way. But there's this view that the closure of the asylums was a victory for mental health advocacy. Whereas in reality, I feel personally that it was a victory over funding for mental health. So you take a whole pie and that is the funding for it. You cut the pie and in, in, in maybe like a third of the pie is left and you say, okay, we're going to spend this on community funding. And in the community funding thing, you know, half of that third, so now you're at a sixth, is taken away by the companies that are running it. So really you're getting something substantially less for the people that are in these places. Uh, there's less oversight. I mean, I worked as a caseworker too, and I went around to these personal care boarding homes where people were kept. And it's like, I was the only guy that was going to check on them. And I remember when I had the job, one of the things that was really tough for me was that they were not following the regulations. And nobody told me as a case manager, I didn't have like case manager class where they tell you what the regulations are and what to look for. So, I mean, that's a thing to think about in and of itself is that as the advocate for the people that are in these places, you don't even always know what the laws are, or what you're advocating for. If they tell you, you drive them to the doctor's appointments, then you do it. But, you know, it might be their responsibility, for example. So, Basically, I looked into the laws. I looked into what their obligations were. I brought it to my boss, who was actually a really nice guy. Um, I liked him a lot. And I said, hey, these guys aren't following the regulations. Like, we need to do something about this. And he basically said to me, well, that's great, except if this place closes, where do all the people in it go? And so with that, you have people that are in inadequately funded community programs, and God help you if you have somebody who needs one of those in your family or you were one of them, because mental health care and care for people with developmental and physical disabilities is awful hard to come by. I mean, it is really, really challenging to get the help that you need for that, and this is one of the reasons why. And I'm not saying that I think the asylum should have stayed open. I think they needed more oversight. I think they could have turned the buildings into hubs where, you know, the caseworker is in one wing of the building and maybe like a day program is over here and classes are in this part and, you know, something like that where you have a bunch of agencies on the same grounds that co can coordinate with each other versus spreading them out to the point where none of them really know what the other ones are doing and can't really manage things in any cohesive way. I forget which hospital it is. I want to say Vermont State Hospital or a hospital in Vermont that was a state hospital is doing exactly that. Oh, that's uh, great. I'll have to look into it more. And I could be misremembering which it is, but I remember reading about a hospital that was doing something very similar with their buildings. Um, but I wanted to circle back just a little bit to what you said about the, the guy that you were talking about who was happy about Worcester coming down. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm with you. I don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think these are the architecture of these buildings is very important. And the history behind them is very important. And tearing it down and salting the earth is not the answer. However, I understand his point. And it's from someone who has worked with groups to try to preserve, you know, buildings. Asylums are a really hard sell to the general public. Right. Even if you didn't have anyone in there, it was still a, 
it was still a you know like like a first place yeah like when i remember telling my grandfather that i was going up to Denver state at night like or whenever i was going there and he was like oh why are you doing that like and not like that he thought it was haunted or or but it was just like a like oh you don't go there and it's like the stigma about them is something that survives to this day years after they've been closed and it's you know it's sad and one of the things that you can kind of think about from this i think it's sort of an important point to ponder shall we say is that you know we talked a little bit earlier about eugenics and how that led to the final solution the work camps concentration camps death camps and so you have asylums which are maybe you know two or three steps back on the ladder from that Mm -hmm. and that's the American version of them. So one of the things that helps people really comprehend the gravity of what happened in the death camps is the ability to go and see the physical reality of the site and to experience it. And so my feeling is if you erase a place like that, you erase the history of it and you erase people's ability to connect with it and understand it. Now, is it practical to save all the asylum buildings? No, but there's also very little effort to do that. I mean, you have places like Metropolitan that were turned into condos in other places, which we may or may not talk about. And also there's Traverse City, which they have turn into like a multi-purpose building and I think that's terrific but by and large these places have been torn down and the other thing that I think is really important to note here is that mental health care at the moment aside from these really strained fairly hard to get resources that are always being attacked with a hatchet by people with that are doing budgets they're always being cut back Aside from these community resources for people that are elderly or that, you know, have disabilities of some kind or another, we're right back to what Dorothea Dix was working against, which is prisons, tons of people with mental health issues that are in prisons right now. And that's a huge issue that really deserves its own podcast in and of itself. But, you know, we could put a link or two, some of the resources on that in the, uh, the notes. But the other thing is the poor houses which are homeless shelters. They're out on the people who are out on the street or they're in the relative's attic, so to speak, which is being cared for by relatives which don't necessarily have adequate resources to do that. And that's, it's kind of come full circle. The year of the asylums is ended and, you know, you have to look at what's replacing it. And one of my kind of mantras on this stuff is progress is replacing a thing with something better. And in this case, what we have to ask ourselves is, is what we have replaced it with an improvement? And this is going to be a thing that follows us for all of time. I mean, dealing with mental health issues and figuring out how to help people with them and realizing that it's something that doesn't just benefit the mentally ill person themselves, but the whole community, you know, something that mankind has really struggled with since as long as we've had people. And every generation has thought that they have had the answer to this. And so now we have this answer, but who's to say that in 50 years, they're not going to be looking back at this period and being like, well, they just put the people back in prisons or dumped them out on the streets, or they had these resources that if you're somebody that's struggling with mental illness or a developmental disability, they're almost impossible for you to figure out how to navigate to get to them. 
there's a lot of hoops and paperwork that you have to jump through. And on top of that, a lot of them are still in some ways removing control from people. They aren't necessarily based around respect for the individuals. Um, I mean, they, they ha we had a lot of meetings on that, but I can tell you that the meetings and the mark that we hit were pretty far apart. So yeah, I mean, that, that I think is kind of brings us to the point where our asylum buildings are sitting abandoned. And yeah, what do you, do you have anything to add to all that, Matt? Well, I feel the asylum buildings at this point were sitting abandoned. I don't want to say that they still are because I feel like the majority of them have either been repurposed, demolished, or yeah, or that's it, repurposed or demolished. I'm not as well-versed in the history of the mental illness. What I learn when I'm researching buildings, I research their history and I learn about them and that's it. In theaters, yeah, I know about movie studios and the history of the movie, you know, movies and stuff. But with asylums, I learned about them. Right. Taunton, Danvers, you know, uh, Taunton, Harlem. I didn't learn about the mental health world. Not at least not as. Hold on, I need to take a sip because I have a cough. Apparently, I didn't go in, and and what I noticed is first when we were talking about the Rust Belt, and you were talking about like the factories closing and things that closed. And I was like, yeah, I knew factories closed, but I didn't know the reasons they did. And but then then if you asked me about the theater in this town that was in the Rust Belt, I could tell you, okay, here's who built it, and here's what happened, and this is this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And so right. I, I find that that's an, it's an interesting dynamic that we're, we're coming with here because you know more about the broad and I know more about the little specifics. Well, you know, bear in mind too, though, that you could run circles around me and you did when we were doing the history of theaters because, you know, one of the things I'm sure I'll say it again, but I always think what's cool about history is it's like stars in the sky and you have a point here, a building here, a person there, an event there. And the longer you look at them, the more you start to see constellations and the way yep. that things all connect. And so for you, I mean, you've totally got the constellations down. For me, it's the asylums. I mean, I worked in mental health for, like I said, about 10 years. I worked in a variety of different settings. I read books voraciously about these places and was really, really fascinated by kind of the tragedy that they represented. So, but yeah, I like that overall picture. All right. Well, I think that covers my part of the podcast about you know the history of mental health. And as we like to do, we're going to go into one of the places, the individual places that you know very well, and that may or may not be the birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy when we come back. So I'm excited to hear more about that because you told us a little bit about it earlier, and I already have learned some things that I did not know about it. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. Come back for episode three. And if you'd like to see more of my work, you can find it all on Abandoned America. Uh, just look it up on Patreon, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And of course, I have the two Abandoned America books. And Matt Lambros is at After the Final Curtain, where you can find him on all the social media. Patreon, he also has three books out. Uh, two of which are under the After the Final Curtain name. And I highly recommend you check out his upcoming podcast, which is also titled After the Final Curtain.